The date is Friday, December 3rd, and you're listening to Entertain This, a thought-provoking podcast encapsulating all things entertainment. On this special holiday episode, we're discussing a song that everybody has heard, and maybe you've even dreamed about the subject matter. It's been Crosby's hit from yesteryear, White Christmas. We'll talk about the writer of this famous song and his rise to an obscure fame. So enjoy. Welcome to the only show on the internet encapsulating all things entertainment. It's entertain this. It's entertain this. I'm Alex. I'm Michael. <laughs> and I'm Nick. <laughs> Guys, this sure is a cold opening. Oh, no. Oh, God. It's Christmas. Baby, it's winter. It's It's cold opening. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) Ain't I a stinker? I like that. That was good. Thank you. It's that time of week again where we gather around the campfire and we tell tales of, of yore, of entertainment, of yesterday, today, and tomorrow. That's exactly what we're doing here. You guys know the drill. It is the same every week, uh, brought to you by our loving hearts and minds. And speaking of loving hearts and minds, it's that time of year again, guys. It's that time of giving, caring, and friendship. It's December, and everyone knows the entire month of December is Happy Honda Days. Mm. <laughs> you're right, you're right. Yeah, yeah, where you can pay zero down, get... uh Something, something, an interest. Something about interest. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I'm interested. I'm interested. I'll tell you that much. Yeah, yeah. Hey, nice. Uh, We're not sponsored by Honda. (laughs) I don't think any of us drive a Honda. (laughs) But get to your Honda dealership and tell them Entertain This sent you. They'll be so confused. Why is it Honda days, but Santa Claus drives a Mercedes? Does he? Yeah, in all the commercials. Yeah, yeah. They got like Mercedes has like exclusive rights to use Santa Claus or something. Well, wow. there's three things I know. It's that Santa drives a Mercedes. Santa, he he drinks Coca-Cola. Classic. Coca-Cola classic. And he hates his job as much as we do. And he loves himself a vacation. <laughs> mm-hmm. And those are the things that I know days of about Santa. Santa. Great benefits. <laughs> He does. Yeah, How about like that. For, 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 for two days of work, he accrews 363 days of vacation time. <laughs> Can we talk how about, about how we never see the elves take a break? They don't get one. What? Like, you, no, they are. You think there's an elf union or something? <laughs> I don't. And I think that's the problem. North Pole isn't even I mean, a, a country, let alone a state. Yeah, 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 yeah. There's no labor laws in the North Pole. <laughs> I think we should send the army up to the North Pole and we should liberate the elves. <laughs> Who's going to make the toys? China. Ooh. Okay. Vote Alex for president China. 2024. <laughs> We're taking back the North Pole. All right. Um, you got my vote. Whatever. Anyway, king of the North. this is. I'm the king of the North. <laughs> this is how things go around here. If you've never watched the show before, it's entertain this. We're a bunch of wild and wacky dudes, and it's Christmas, so I guess now we're bastardizing Santa, and that's that's us. That's us in a nutshell. Um, it is Christmas. It is the first episode of the month of December, and we're doing a, we're going to be doing a lot of Christmas stuff, a lot of fun Christmas stuff coming up. We got an extra week in December, so you're going to get even you're going to get a little extra Christmas cheer in your in your stockings this year. We got some cool stuff planned, but uh, I'm going to roll out the uh, red and green carpet. Mm. Uh, 
as we welcome in the month of December with this episode of Entertain This. And as always, I'm going to start off my episode as I so love to do. I've, I realized, guys, that my episodes are very, um, they're very repetitive in their format. <laughs> they're never the same topic, but I always kind of do things the same way. And that's just the like flavor that I bring to the to the show. So I hope you don't mind if you start to pick up on some trends. I don't know. But I have some opening. I have some opening questions. I don't know. You switched it up pretty hard with the uh, Macy's Thanksgiving Day Parade one. I did switch. That one <laughs> yeah. was yeah. That one was uh. I I had a lot of talking to do there, mm-hmm. and I wanted to do a little show, a little game show at the end. But this is going to be back <laughs> to formula. This is Alex episode classic. Uh, Santa approved. So nice. Okay. I want to. It's Chris. It's Christmas. I did this for Thanksgiving, uh, but I'm going to do it now. It's Christmas edition. I want to talk about Christmas traditions that you guys have um, or Christmas memories from your childhood or things that you still kind of hold near and dear to your heart. What rings in hmm. the Yule tie uh, for you guys? Hmm. Hmm. So, so did your families ever do like St. Nicholas Day? Yep. Like you put your shoes yeah. by the uh, fireplace and he comes and puts like a pencil in it. Oh, yeah. So, yeah. so like what my family did is like we th- I think this is like this is a great strategy for parents, by the way, like <laughs> have it so that St. Nicholas Day is like where you have your kids make their Christmas list and they put it in their shoe. And St. Nicholas takes your Christmas list to give to Santa, Ooh. which I think is the oh. same person. But, but what it does the same is person, so that's what it wild. does is because St. Nick's Day is like December 5th gives you 20 days to shop for gifts. That's a lot. Ooh. That way, when you got like straggler kids like me who uh, procrastinate on everything, uh, I would because I would actually be the kind of kid that would give my mom my Christmas list on like December like 20th. Be like, get it. <laughs> yeah. Good luck. I'm just like, here you go. <laughs> this is for Santa, please. <laughs> <laughs> your poor mother <laughs> yeah well like that was one of the big ones but the other was like we would uh sit around and we would watch the um when i was like a little little kid we would watch the really like good but shitty claymation yeah. <laughs> those are classics yeah like they're the, fantastic the- but they're like if you watch them now it's just kind of like it's part of the charm is like how like bad they are. It's yeah. like you compare that to in like Coraline or something. What I think is so charming about them is that they teeter so close to the uncanny valley, but they never go over that edge. But it's uh. the way that they move and how their mouths don't necessarily sync up that you're just like, okay. Yeah, yeah. no, cool. it's one of those yeah. things like for the for the time, it was like incredible. But like now oh, yeah. you look back on it, it's just kind of like, oh, OK, like I know people in like middle school have done better claymation projects. <laughs> Oh, it's like the Lego Oof. stuff that my eight-year-old cousin does. Cool. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> frame by frame, it keeps getting yeah worse and worse. So. But, uh, That's right. But then, like, as we got older, and I had like younger siblings, like the movies transitioned to like Elf. Elf is still like one of my family's big classic like Christmas movies that we watch every year. Yeah, mm-hmm. big Chef's kiss to Elf for oh, yeah. sure. <laughs> what about uh, you? Nick? I don't know if I've gotten in the the habit of doing this, but. I'm trying to force my family to watch the Polar Express every year. Um, that oof. sucks. That's, That's a, a sucky in, thing that you're doing. In addition to those awful claymation things. Well, it's part of ABC Family's uh, 25 Days of Christmas or something like that. We're also but, not sponsored by ABC, shockingly. <laughs> we could be at this point. <laughs> yeah. We don't, don't talk enough about like, Harry Potter. Yeah. Yep. That's true. 
Um, um, yeah. Nick, here's a fun fact for you while we're on the topic of Polar Express. Mm-hmm. Chloe, our fact checker, and I, who are dating, for those who don't know, we went and we visited her parents mm-hmm. uh, over the Thanksgiving weekend, and we spent some time with them. And yep. her father, friend of the show, Steve Price, MD, uh, who taught us how to drink bourbon, informed me <laughs> that <laughs> when they were doing mocap for the faces in the Polar Express, the computer yep. technology at the time left them un- uncapable of tracking eye movement. So they had to go back in and they had to animate the eyes alone, frame oh, by frame. No. And for that reason, every character in the Polar Express has very dead eyes. Absolutely <laughs> dead, doll-like eyes. And dead. that is why I hate that movie. Mm. Fun fact. I didn't I know why until he pointed that out, but now I know for a, a sure fact, I hate it because of the eyes. Hmm. At least you nailed it down. I, I just like it for the train, I'll be honest with you. Yeah, of course. So there's Didn't that. you say the Polar Express was like an inaccurate representation of the train? <clears throat> if I may put on my uh, rivet counting spectacles here. We did have an episode on this where you said it, so you could just give us the, you know, the flyover yeah. of it. Sure. Yeah. So I have a book upstairs that's entitled CNO Power. It's okay. all the locomotives that were in the Chesapeake and Ohio Railroad. But basically, CNO bought out Perry Marquette which was a smaller locomotive, but Perry Marquette 1225 is the locomotive they used to model the real Polar Express. So what's inaccurate about that is that you see the fireman in the front of the cab and he's scooping in coal, right? Yeah. But at that time, they transitioned away from scooping coal, like hand loading it into the firebox, into a mechanical stoker, which is basically a screw that spooled in the coal for them. So So Mike, this is what you missed an hour of during the train episode. Oh boy. <laughs> no, it was much more exciting. <laughs> so my so my favorite Christmas tradition um is turning on the radio and listening to the Christmas songs that are completely illegal and psycho to listen to any time other than Christmas. Mm-hmm. Like December 1st hits, you can turn on these old Christmas songs. But if you turn them on a day before December 1st, you've lost your goddamn mind. So if oh you listen boy. to them in July, you're pretty much already gone. Oh, no, you're gone. Yeah, you're like, gone, buddy. <laughs> oh, Oops. God. Yeah, from working like retail at a mall for three, four years. Oh, my God. It's burned into my brain. As soon as Thanksgiving hits, the Christmas music Christmas comes music on. starts. Yep. <laughs> well, I start getting a little fidgety for Christmas, you know? I start I start getting cravings. Hmm. I got to turn it on in July. Yeah. Oh, you 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 listen to Christmas songs no, I just in get July? A quick little hit of like, you know, all I want for Christmas is you and then I'm good. And then I'm set for like until December. Okay, Mariah Carey might actually write you a personal letter about that. <laughs> hey, Nick, stop. <laughs> she usually does not get spikes that time of year. It's going to freak her out. I'm sorry. But have you guys ever <laughs> noticed that like it seems like there's a limit to Christmas songs? Like yeah, there are like new Christmas songs come out, but they're not actually new. They're just like the new singers singing the old songs in like they're a different good. way. Yeah, they're not good. Like there isn't an original Christmas song that's come out in like a long time. Yeah, not one that's well known at least. Yeah, I feel like I heard one not too long ago. The closest thing to like a new Christmas song. I uh, Hold on. Country music does it all the time. They try <laughs> new Christmas songs all the time. Well, that's because country never music is all with, about just making money, not actually making good music. They never hit with like the grand audience. They don't become a staple in pop culture. True. But the one song that the closest to a new Christmas song that I can think of was the one from... Um, from Love Actually, where it's like, I feel it in my fingers. I feel it in my toes. 
And you guys might not know that, but that does get me in the Christmas spirit for some reason. <laughs> okay, whatever works, man. There, there's the the Justin Bieber song that came out like oh god, like nine years ago now. <laughs> oh no. Oh cool. Yeah, that was an original. Is it regularly. Yes, actually. No. Original Christmas songs come out. None of them stick around. No, this one stuck yeah. around. Like you'll find it on almost every like Christmas playlist. What song is it? I think it's Mistletoe. Justin Bieber Mistletoe. Yeah, I'll, I'll put in a I'll put in a quick loop when we edit this. No, don't do that. No, we'll get sued. Just, no, just a little. No, don't do that. Okay, we'll talk over it. <laughs> okay. I'll throw them off. <laughs> uh, it's not Justin Bieber. This isn't him. Nope, this is. Ben Bustin, Bustin Jeeber. <laughs> Bustin Jeeber. <Okay. laughs> That's worse. I don't know how, Bustin but it's worse. makes me feel good. Bustin, Bustin do be making me feel good. Um, <laughs> but you guys get the point. Like, yeah, yeah. Christmas songs, basically, we got the classics. We got Rudolph the Red-Nosed Reindeer. We got All I Want for Christmas is You. You know, all those. And those are pretty much it. And so I kind of wanted to do... There's one Christmas song that um, kind of inspired more than all the rest from what I feel. That's probably not true. I guess Rudolph kind of inspired the most, but it inspired at least something that I enjoy around this uh, this Christmas time, and that's the movie White Christmas. Ooh. Ooh. So, again, I'm very formula-based formula in my episodes, and I'm sure you guys could probably guess that what I'm going to do next is take you guys all the way back to before the conception of even the thing we're talking about, and then I'm going to slowly, over time, build you guys up to the actual topic of White Christmas. Nice. So for the next hour, <laughs> let me walk you down White Christmas Lane and talk about everything in between. And, you know... <laughs> you missed an opportunity there. <laughs> You're going to call it on. Santa Claus Lane. What do you... You know, that's just what I want to do. And I mean, <laughs> I may get meta in an untrademarked sense. I like that. It's White Christmas. It's a song that everybody knows and that at least everybody has a familiarity Are with. Are we talking about the song um, or the movie? The song. Okay. White Christmas. And the reason that I that I say that is because it's one of those songs where like, there aren't a lot of songs like this. But one note from this song, the very first note from this song, you immediately know what song it is. And Michael, can you try to hit it for us? Hold on. Let me I haven't heard this song in a while. Let me, let me listen to it real quick. Okay, hold on. I'll give you I'll give you the first the first note. Or the first word. All you have to say is I'm and then dreaming. Oh. <laughs> gotcha. Michael Buble. Pretty much anybody who has the uh capacity for breath and the ability to utter a tune or at least attempt to has attempted that very low. I'm and just that alone, you're like <laughs> you gotta really oh, oh yeah, yeah. I know. <laughs> I know what song this is as yep. soon as you hear it. Um, and there aren't many songs like that where you can recognize them by like their first word. And yet uh, in my research that I committed myself to in preparation for this episode, I discovered so much more about this admittedly basic Christmas tune. Um, so sit, sit back and wrap yourself in a blanket as I ask you to entertain this. And that was my opening. Oh, Okay. Woo. I did it. Perfect. Perfect opportunity to say entertain this. I nailed it. First try. <laughs> nice. 
So I want to start with the man who willed this classic into existence. Do you guys know who wrote White Christmas? Who Bing wrote Crosby? it? Without Googling it. What? Bing Crosby. Yeah, was it Bing Crosby? A lot of people, a lot of people think that it was Bing Crosby, but it actually was not. Because well, he's the actor in the movie. He's the actor in the movie. And the actual sings. the actual composer was a friend of Bing Crosby's named Irving Berlin. Oh, I've heard his name before. Any musical theater <laughs> uh, savant will know Irving Berlin. Mm-hmm. He wrote musicals like uh, Annie Get Your Gun, the one that has like anything you can do, I can do better. Yep. That was him. Oh, that's nice. Yeah. Um, he was actually born. Uh, he was born. Um, Israel Bielan was his actual name. All right. And he was born on May 11th of 1888 in the Russian Empire. Ooh. <laughs> so that's where we're starting. <laughs> is in Russia before the Soviet Union. And although his uh, family came from Shtetl, I'm mispronouncing <laughs> that, Totachin, uh, documents say that he was born in Tiumen, Siberia. Ooh, it's cold out there. It is cold and white. So and not keep Christmas. that in mind as we move <laughs> forward. Uh, he was actually one of eight children of Moses and Lena Bielin. Um, his father was a cantor in sing in a singagru, which is like a singer. <laughs> he basically had musical roots. Okay. Um, and he uprooted his family to America. Um, as did many other Jewish families in the late 19th century. So here's some things we already know about um, Irving Berlin. His name is actually actually Israel Bielin, and he's Jewish, hmm. which is kind of crazy. Because <laughs> when you think about White Christmas, that's kind of the last person, a Russian man named Israel <laughs> from the Russian Empire, who is Jewish, wrote, Maybe one of the most recognizable Christmas songs. <laughs> and his last name's Berlin, which is in Germany, but he was born in Russia. Well, so <laughs> his his last name is Bielin. Bielin. Which he changed to Berlin? Well, I guess I can see that. We'll get there. Yeah. So on September 14th of 1893, the family arrived on Ellis Island in New York City. Uh, the family left the old continent of Antwerp uh, aboard the SS Ringeland from the Red Star Line. Oh. Macy's familiar. You you know the Red Star Line. We've talked about it before. Macy's. Yep. Hmm. Uh, it was yeah. Macy worked on the Red Star Line. That's why he got the Red Star tattoo and eventually made that the trademark for Macy's. Yep. The world is very small when you think about it. <laughs> it's a small world after all. When they arrived, Israel was put in a pen with his brother and five sisters until immigration officers declared them fit to be allowed into the city, as things were done back then. Yep. Wasn't great. That's how things were done. After their arrival, the name Bielin was changed to Ballin. Um, and according to biographer Lawrence Burgreen, as an adult, Berlin admitted to no memories of his five years in Russia, except for one, when he was lying on a blanket by the side of the road, watching his house burn to the ground. By daylight, the house was ashes. Oof. That's all he remembers about Russia. So that's pretty wild. Yeah, that's like half yeah. the plot to Anastasia. Yeah, that's basically <laughs> half the plot to Anastasia. You're right. So, so he changed his name to Ballin at that point? No. So so it's 
Bielin was changed by the immigration officers right. to Ballin. Right, because to make they it recognized sound... that he was absolutely sick at basketball. <laughs> yeah, yeah, exactly. Yeah. It also might have been pronounced Ballin. Oh, okay. But... So he had like... Let's go with Ballin. He had like a really bad hairline. Okay. <laughs> Ballin. Yeah. No, he's one... dead, yeah. Michael. One or the other. Like He's either a winner or a loser. Yeah. <laughs> so he basically didn't know that he was being raised in like poverty at the time because he literally didn't know any other life. Mm -hmm. So if he was impoverished, he had no clue about it. And since the uh, now known as ball lines were one of hundreds of thousands of Jewish families who immigrated to the United States in the late 1800s and early 1900s, escaping discrimination, poverty and brutal pogroms, which is like a group of people who were against immigrants at the time. Um, there were other people who were also following the same path, a lot of really famous names that included the Warner Brothers, um, as hmm. well as Ira Gershwin, who is another very famous Broadway performer of the time. Chloe is shaking her head, yes, she has a degree, so I will continue on. <laughs> is he related to uh, George Gershwin at all? Uh, we're going to talk about George, but yes, Ira and George Gershwin are actually siblings. Hmm. That's awesome. I know, yeah. I know something about him. <laughs> okay, go ahead. What do you know? Uh, George Gershwin wrote Rhapsody in Blue, and it's a very good classical music piece that has like heavy sprinkles of jazz influence in there. It's a good, Chloe it's a good tune. so proud of us right now. It's awesome. <laughs> <laughs> so cool. So after arriving in New York City, the ball lines, which is what I'm going to call him now, because I don't think he was balling. Um, <laughs> balling. <laughs> they lived briefly in a basement flat on Monroe Street and then moved into a three-room tenant at 330 Cherry Street. His father, unable to find comparable work as a cantor in New York, took a job as a kosher meat uh, market butcher, basically, and gave Hebrew lessons on the side to support his family um, he died a few years later uh, when Irving at the time was only 13 years old. Mm. <laughs> so, you know, if that's the main uh, breadwinner of the family, now 13-year-old Irving Berlin is basically left to figure out, like, how he's going to get his next meal. Mm. Um, so with only a few years of schooling, um, Irving basically began helping support his family and he became a newspaper boy. Uh, he was hawking the evening journal was, was the paper he was throwing out. And one day while delivering newspapers, um, a, uh, he, he basically was stopped, uh, to look at a ship departing for China and became so entranced that he did not see a swinging crane. Uh, and it knocked him into the river. Oh, <laughs> When he was fished out after going down for a third time, he was still holding clenched in his fist five pennies that he had earned that day that he refused to let go. Hmm. So wow. that's the mindscape that Irving Berlin had all his life. Gotcha. Was. I need money and I will not give up money and money is a precious thing to me. Um because it is what is needed to make change in my life. He realized that quick, that if you had money, it could make change. Um, Literally. So so he understood the value of a dollar moving forward. 
Um, so keep that in mind as we talk about some of the things that he did. His mother took a job as a midwife and his three sisters worked wrapping cigars, something that was uh, very uh, lucrative back then. <laughs> it was common for immigrant girls to do that kind of work. Um his older brother worked in a sweatshop assembling shirts and each evening when the family came home from their day's work, um, they would deposit their coins that they had earned that day into Lennon's outspread apron. And basically it was like a collection pot to try to keep everything going. So none of the money stayed with the individuals. If they earned money, it was the families. <laughs> uh, music historian, Philip Fura writes that when, uh, Irving began to sell newspapers in the Browery. He was exposed to the music and sounds coming from the saloons and restaurants that lined the crowded streets. And young Berlin sang some of the songs they heard while selling papers and people would toss him some coins. So he found an additional way to make money while selling these papers to perform on the street and to sing these songs. And that, you know, lit a lit a fuse. It, you know, struck a light light bulb moment. Ching. He's like money. I need that, and music equals money. <laughs> he figured it out. Yeah. He's like, music, I, I can make music. I make music all the time. I make music, that's fine. <laughs> so maybe that's what started his love for music and his desire to create music was realizing, you know, what uh, a privilege it could be to be able to make music and earn money that way. He confessed to his mother one evening that his newest ambition in life was to become a, to become a singing waiter in a saloon. And, you know, luckily that didn't pan out because had that been all he did, we may never know the name Irving Berlin. Um, before Berlin was 14, his meager income was added was adding less than his sisters to the family budget. And that made him feel basically worthless. Um that he couldn't help support his family and that he wasn't being a breadwinner yeah. because back then, you know, gender roles were like, if you're a man, you need to support your family. If you're a woman, you need to be supported by a man. Yeah. So, you know, he's 14 years old and he can't make enough money to earn more than his sisters. And he's basically like, okay, then I'm a failure basically. Right. Cause back then society would have said, yeah, you are, yeah. you know, so what's he do? He's not making enough money and he feels worthless in this current social situation that he finds himself in. Um, you may assume he, you know, got a better job or started working harder to earn more money. Nope. He decided to leave home. Uh, and, you know, can't can't be beat out by a sister if a sister doesn't have the same bank account as him and isn't <laughs> contributing to the same fund that he is. Well, you know, so you he know leaves home and if you can't beat him, leave him. <laughs> <laughs> I I love that and I've never heard that before and that's dope. <laughs> so uh he leaves and he joins the city's ragged army of uh young immigrants. So a big group of kids who now live together like the Lost Boys and Peter Pan. <laughs> um and they basically took up residence uh in one of the lodging houses that sheltered the thousands of other homeless boys. So it wasn't an orphanage. It was like a homeless shelter for kids. Mm. Mm -hmm. uh, he described living there as being unchartable living quarters. He said it was Dickinsonian in its meanness, filth, and insensitivity to ordinary human beings. Referencing Emily, or not Emily Dickinson, but... Um, Charles Dickinson? 
Charles Dickinson. Yeah. <laughs> Charles Dickens. Yeah. Yeah. Yes. This is an entertainment podcast. Oh. I'm sorry. I couldn't sit quiet, quietly by. It's Dickensian. Okay. Charles Dickens. Yeah. Dickensian. Poverty. Anyway. Great job, guys. <laughs> hey, did you guys you. know that I'm dyslexic? It's fun when we write scripts and stuff. No, you thought it was Emily Dickinson. <laughs> well, That's not on you. <laughs> Emily Dickinson? Yeah. No, like with, the, with, Dickin, with Dickinson, like Dickensian makes sense. Yeah. Charles Dickens. But it's Dickens. Dickens. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Dickensian. If it were want to take that line again. Let's just take that line again. Cool, cool, cool. Right, yeah, How about we it. just take that line yeah, again? I'm going to have to edit this out now. All right, all right, all right. Yep. Three, two. So he described it as being uncharitable living quarters, Dickensian <laughs> in its meanness, filth, and insensitivity to ordinary human beings. There we go. Yeah. I was trying to hold back the laughter. <laughs> wow. That was I'm the sorry. first time I said that. What are you guys being so weird I don't about? Know, yeah, I'm laughing anyway. the neck. Yeah. So he had few survival survival skills and realized that formal employment was basically out of the question for him. Um, so his only ability that he had acquired from his uh, father's vocation as a singer was basically music comprehension and being able to carry a tune. So he joined with several other youngsters who went to saloons and sang for the customers. So... <laughs> It's becoming less uh, Lost Boy and a little bit more um, Pinocchio-esque. These group of, like, ragamuffins ganging up to, like, you know, fight for a different cause. And you can see where his life is being led by music at this point. It's like the only place he's actually seen any success. Yeah. So far, It's the only place where he's made a dime on his own, Mm -hmm. like, his own product. So he would sing a few popular ballads that he heard on the street, hoping that people would pitch him a few pennies. Um, from these seamy surroundings, he became streetwise. And uh, with real and lasting education, he he basically understood how to work the streets and how to uh, make money off of being a child, an orphan, a pickpocket, you know, that kind of a lifestyle. Music at at this point basically was his only source of income um, that he admitted to. And he picked up the languages and culture of at the time living what was described as a ghetto lifestyle. Not Hmm. exactly what we think of now. Mm -hmm. Um, More of a Dickensian ghetto lifestyle, if you would. Ooh, he nailed it. Thank you. (laughs) So he learned what kind of songs appeared... uh, basically in popular culture at the time, a bunch of well-known tunes expressing simple sentiments um, were the most reliable. So he soon began plugging songs at Tony Pastor's Music Hall in Union Square in 1906 when he was 18 years old. And he actually got a job as a singing waiter at a place called Pelham Cafe, which was his dream at the time. So he had checked that one off the the old box. It was a cafe in Chinatown where he was a singing waiter. <laughs> nice. 
And we're still talking about the guy who basically revolutionized Christmas music. So yeah. this is where he's at right now. <laughs> and I was sad that I was working at Target last week. <laughs> that's so, the first time we've actually, I think, mentioned it by name on the show. <laughs> hey, that's because I don't work there anymore. <laughs> by the time this releases, yes. <laughs> I will not have, yes. So No longer the Red, Red Menace. Menace. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> he basically taught himself how to play piano in his free time. And he never had an official lesson. He just kind of like went in at the bar where he was uh, a singing waiter at night and basically diddled on the piano until he was able to improvise tunes. And that's Hmm. how he learned how to play piano. Um, He published his first song, Mary from Sunny Italy, written in collaboration with uh, the Pelham resident pianist. His name was Mike Nicholson. And in 1907, he received 33 cents for the publishing rights to that song. So he made money. It was only 33 cents. And that was how much Irving Berlin made on his first piece. Speaking of the name Irving Berlin, he actually had a spelling error in his own uh, publishing rights. And he accidentally (laughs) published the song under the name I Berlin instead of I uh, Berlin. As, as it was changed before. Hmm. So instead of going through all the legal fees of publishing it under the correct name, he just changed his name to <laughs> Irving Berlin. Is it easier to change his name as opposed to like... Well, as someone actually... who has copywritten something before, it costs like $50 if you do it wrong the first time. Mm-hmm. And I don't know oh. how much money that was back in like 1906, but I imagine it was more than 33 cents. And that yeah. was like... So he would have taken a loss if he tried to fix it. He just decided to go with it. So, you know what? I'm Berlin now. Yeah, yeah. like that. I could, <laughs> I could go on with uh, his story, but it basically tells itself after that. Irving Berlin went on to become a great writer and composer, penning many of the songs that we now consider timeless. Songs like "Anything You Can Do, I Can Do Better" from mm-hmm. "Annie Get Your Gun." He wrote the song "Putting on the Ritz," uh, which was a very oh. famous song back then. But you guys probably know it from "Young Frankenstein." Um, <laughs> he wrote "There's No Business Like Show Business." A very famous song. Um, and he wrote God Bless America. Oh. Well, God Bless America, damn it. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, that was that was Irving Berlin who wrote God Bless America. Hmm. Um, he wrote God he w- Bless America and White Christmas, and he is a Jewish guy from Russia. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that's right. Even though he was a Russian immigrant, yeah. um, Berlin was actually very patriotic. Yeah. He wrote yeah, and performed patriotic songs all the time. Well, and I'm sure like back then that? too, like that makes sense given like Christmas at that point was probably like much more like even though it's like a big cultural event now, like in the US, like I'm sure even back then it was like, oh, the thing. Yeah. Well, Nick, let's let's talk about what America was like back then in the thralls of World War One and World War Two. Oh. I mean, it was a time of, you know patriotism you had to be proud for your country you had to be proud for the sacrifices that the brave soldiers were uh performing overseas and it was rare that you got to see your family everything was kind of scary and the economy wasn't in a great place christmas was this one time a year where everything felt peaceful and quiet oh yeah and and you bring up peaceful you bring up peaceful because you know in world war one they actually stopped fighting for christmas yeah. The two sides met in the middle and they started like trading sweets with each other and playing soccer and 
Like, imagine that on a modern battlefield. Hold on, hold on, Taliban and Al-Qaeda. Stop, stop shooting. I have to exchange presents with you. Hold on. <laughs> like, that wouldn't fly. Yeah. It was a different world back then, really. It was a magical time. Christmas was this magical time, especially with exactly what you just said. People in the middle of war, stopping a war and celebrating Christmas. The Christmas so kind of makes of sense. 1914, I think it was. 15. Yeah. One of those so you know, <laughs> so that was what what war was that World War One? Yep. Mm-hmm. Okay, that was World War One. So I. yeah, so he he wrote a lot of songs, uh, patriotic songs throughout World War One and World War Two, and he, as often was the case for entertainers of the day, would actually be sent to camps to entertain and lift the spirits of the thousands of soldiers fighting for their country overseas. Yeah, um, like Bob Hope, like Bob Hope, and others. And Robin um, Williams. <laughs> Robin Williams did it too. You're right. Yeah. Good yeah. Morning, I mean, that's Vietnam. <laughs> those are kind of modern day uh, representations of stuff that, you know, still goes on. Um, I think even Miley Cyrus went overseas at one point to perform for the troops. But that's like just a thing in entertainment is that you like go overseas, you perform for the troops, you help lift their spirits and stuff like that. Yeah. Right now, we're kind of not in a time of war. Like there is still a war, but it's not like an active war like no, we're you know we're not, not selling war. war bonds and stuff no. but you know so right now i doubt it's happening a lot but it it is a very real thing that oh, yeah. entertain that is an entertainment people would go over and they would entertain the troops hmm. um so when the united states joined world war ii after the attack on pearl harbor in december of 1941 berlin immediately began posing a number of patriotic songs in reaction to that basically like it was do. like I see a need for these songs. I mean, think about it's kind of a downer for a Christmas episode, but think about 9-11. Think about all the songs that came out oh, yeah. after 9-11 where it was like, I'm proud to be an American. Like um, all the songs just about like the experiences of living through 9-11 and stuff like that. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. This was, you know, ni- the 1941 equivalent. But he wrote an entire uh, stage show uh, called This is the Army. And it was taken to Broadway and then to Washington, D.C., where Franklin D. Roosevelt attended a showing of it. Oh, my. Um, yeah. And it was eventually shown at military bases throughout the world, including London, North America, Italy, the Middle East uh, and Pacific countries, sometimes in close proximity to battle zones. Uh, Berlin actually wrote that nearly three. He actually wrote nearly three dozen songs for the show, which contained a cast of get this. 300 men in this show that's huge yeah that a big show I don't yeah it's a pretty big show <laughs> yes <laughs> most musicals are under like 20 people oh yeah I didn't yeah know so that. it's a is a is a big he's big, big show he's <laughs> big show is <laughs> is big man he supervised the production and he traveled with it and he was always singing uh Oh, how I hate to get up in the morning. You know that song? Oh, I hate to get up. I hate to get up. I hate to get up in the morning. I hate to get up. I hate to get up. I hate to get up at all. I hate getting up in the morning. I hate getting up in the morning. It's always played on trumpet, but that's the actual lyrics to the song written by Irving Berlin. I doubt that. I think the trumpet song probably existed before that was penned with lyrics, but you know, that's neither here nor there. Neither here nor there. That's correct. Um, But the show kept him away from his family for three and a half years, uh, during which he took neither salary nor expenses, and he turned over all of the profits to the uh, Army Emergency Relief Fund. Oh, 
I bet that. Because he understands the value of a dollar and the power that it has. Mm-hmm. What a good boy. That was actually something that like Irving Berlin continued to do throughout the rest of his career was if there was a way that he could give the money to a better cause, he would always find a way to do it. Mm-hmm. There's actually a story that uh, he wrote a song for him and his second wife to dance at or to dance to at their wedding. His daughter from his first wife was so upset that he was getting remarried that Irving Berlin gave all the rights and all of the money to the rights to his daughter as an apology. It's basically so she would have a steady income for the rest of her life. Hmm. Wow. Like that's what he did was he would write songs and give the rights away to help other people. Hmm. Good for him. So let's let's keep talking about this is the army the show that he wrote because the play was eventually adapted into a movie by the same name in 1943 is anybody familiar with the movie this is the army nope so it was directed (laughs) by uh michael curtis and it co-starred joan leslie and ronald reagan oh ronald reagan the actor (laughs) (laughs) the actor the the president (laughs) Yeah, he at the time Ronald Reagan was an army lieutenant, actually. Yeah. So everybody's involved in the army. Um Kate Smith also sang God Bless America in the film with a backdrop showing families anxious over the coming war. And the show became a hit movie and a morale booster road show that toured the battlefronts of Europe. Um the show's movie combined raised $10 million, to which Berlin also donated to the US. Uh, army relief fund hmm. 10 million dollars of that times money which is a lot yeah. Huge. <laughs> oh yeah even more what year was this um so this was in i believe uh 1943 right? okay. yeah yes that's like at least a million now yeah 10 million dollars back then is way more than a million dollars now it's probably like a hundred million. <laughs> it's more than a million, right? I don't know. So uh, it is the equivalent uh, to one hundred and fifty-nine million eight hundred seventy-eight thousand okay. and thirty-four cents. That's crazy. <laughs> and he basically was like, "I don't want that money." <laughs> thirty-four. I cents. did this for the army. And let's remember, this is an, a Russian immigrant. Did he have? He had stake in the game, sure, because it was where he lived. But like. He wasn't born an American. He was an immigrant who just loved the country. So in recognition for his contributions to troops morale, Berlin was actually awarded the Medal of Merit by President Harry S. Truman. So that's the third president that we can mark off that (laughs) met and uh, enjoyed the company of uh, Irving Berlin. Senior Berlin. (laughs) Yeah. Um, And his daughter, Mary Ellen, who was 15 when she was... uh, at the opening night performance of This is the Army on Broadway, remembers that when her father, Irving Berlin, who normally uh, shunned the spotlight, appeared in the second act uh, in soldiers' full regalia, and he sang, as he did every morning to wake up the actors who were performing in his show, Oh, How I Hate to Get Up in the Morning. And he was (laughs) greeted with a standing ovation that lasted for 10 minutes. (laughs) That's a bit much. <laughs> <laughs> My hands will get tired of clapping after all yeah, that. I feel like it's at some point in the show, you got you just got to like look around and just be like, guys, come on. <laughs> Can we stop now? Uh, Can we stop? <laughs> so at the time when he was doing this, he was 50 years old. Oh. Um, huh. 
he he later said that those years were some of the most thrilling in his life performing for these soldiers <laughs> he's a good boy yeah, very good Irving boy. berlin you can see how this started out going to be an episode about white christmas and then became an episode about irving berlin <laughs> he was a cool dude yeah very nice guy so it was around the same time that uh pearl harbor was attacked that um he was actually uh in la quinta california uh and it was it was rumored that berlin actually wrote white christmas uh, while staying at the la quinta hotel um which was a frequent hollywood retreat also favored by writer director producer frank capra so when you put in the context of irving berlin being a man who grew up in russia and then new york basically was homeless and now he's around around christmas time he's sitting in a hotel in california what is he doing he's dreaming of a white christmas Mm. he's dreaming about back in the day when he would wake up on christmas morning and there was a blanket of snow outside but now he's sitting in california and there's no snow to be seen and it's like mild weather and he's just wondering if the magic is still there even though it's not a white christmas um and he basically writes out this ditty white christmas and he called his secretary and he said i want you to take down this song i wrote it over the weekend not only is it the best song i ever wrote it's the best song anyone has ever wrote wow thinks highly of himself <laughs> he thinks highly of this song oh, in okay. particular yes so the first performance of white christmas officially was uh by of course bing crosby which is probably mm -hmm. why a lot of people think that he wrote it when he didn't he was just the first to perform it but he was a good friend of irving berlin so i doubt that irving would be very mad to hear that people think bing wrote it <laughs> it was on um his nbc radio show the craft music hall he performed it on christmas day in 1941 hmm. so a few weeks after the attack on pearl harbor basically yeah it was december 7th you can kind of feel how emotional that might be for the country. Yeah. Uh, yeah, we were a little angry mm -hmm. <laughs> as Americans. That was like a slap in the face. I know people will say, technically Hawaii wasn't a state by then, so it wasn't really like U.S. territory, but... But it was an army base. Mm -hmm. It was an army base. Yeah, Navy. Or a Navy base. base. Yeah, yeah, sorry. So It was a Navy base, for sure. Slap in the face. We're a little angry. Yeah. <laughs> and patriotic, let's not forget. So uh, basically, people are in this mourning state. I mean, it was anger, but at the same time, it was mourning oh, yeah, the loss definitely. of the lives that were lost there. And they're now hearing Bing Crosby sing about how he just wishes it were like the olden days where things were merry and bright and kids would play in the snow. And it's almost uplifting. It's this moment in history, and it happens a couple times in American history, where everything kind of shifts and everyone becomes one person and we all feel the same thing at the same time. And that's what white Christmas felt like when it was first sang. Hmm. It was so powerful that it actually got played a number of other times. The recording was actually uh, owned by Crosby estates and was loaned to CBS news Sunday morning for them to play on December 25th um, of that same year. So it got, you know, passed around. People wanted to hear it. <laughs> but at the time, uh, 
Bing Crosby actually didn't care too much for the song. He didn't not like it. He just didn't see anything special about it. He didn't get what was so great about it. He actually went on record to say, I don't think we have any problems with that one, Irving. Basically, just like, it's fine. You know, I got no problems with it. (laughs) It's making me money, so who cares? (laughs) It's not like I like it. It's just like, yeah, there's no problems with it. But you got other stuff. Adequate. (laughs) Right. The song established... First off, that at the time, there were no Christmas songs. This was the first commercially successful Christmas song. Oh. So this was before Rudolph. This was before, you know, all of the famous Christmas songs that you know. This was the very first one. And it proved that there could be this pop culture um, staple for Christmas. (laughs) And in this case, it just so happened to be written by a Jewish immigrant. (laughs) Doesn't have to make sense. Um, Ronald D. Uh, Lankford Jr. wrote, During the 1940s, White Christmas would set the stage for a number of classic American holiday uh, steeped in a misty longing for yesteryear, which is exactly what White Christmas is when you think about it. It's just a nostalgia. It's a song about being nostalgic for Christmases gone by. Um, before 1942, Christmas songs and films had basically come out sporadically, and many were popular, However, the popular culture industry had not viewed the theme of home and hearth centered on the Christmas holiday as a unique market. Yeah, I could see that. Yeah, but that was until the success of White Christmas, basically changing Christmas music forever, both revealing the huge potential in market for Christmas songs and by establishing the theme of home and nostalgia that would run through Christmas music for basically the rest of time. Mm hmm. Because that's what Christmas is all about. It's about being home, being... I'll be home for Christmas. You know, I'll be home for Christmas, being home and wanting to be home, knowing that home is peaceful, yeah. knowing that this is a happy time. It's about peace, comfort, spending time with family. Yeah. Trains. So <laughs> let's, let's talk about... Jake. Yeah, Nick, you really derailed us there. <laughs> Ooh. <laughs> <laughs> so I want to I want to talk more about Bing Crosby for a second. We talked a lot about Irving Berlin, and this is kind of where we're going to take a step away from Irving and let White Christmas take the main stage as our subject. Um, Bing Crosby kind of sailed this ship. Yeah, it was built by Irving, but the captain of the ship was Bing Crosby. He's the one who recorded it, popularized it. He's the voice you hear in your head. When you think of White Christmas Mm -hmm. and one of the ways that he sort of manned the ship was uh, just as Irving had with his show, uh, Bing Crosby went around to uh, different military bases and he performed for the troops in World War Two singing White Christmas in 1944. Hmm. Um, And according to Crosby's nephew, uh, Howard Crosby, he once asked his uncle what the most difficult thing had ever been during his entertainment career. And he said in 1944, he was in an, a USO show with Bob Hope and the Andrews sisters. Um, they did an outdoor show in northern France, and he had been standing there and sang White Christmas in front of 100,000 GIs in tears without breaking down himself. They were all crying, and he basically couldn't break down. And of course, a lot of those boys were killed in the Battle of the Bulge just a few days later. Oof. And that was one of the hardest things for Bing Crosby. 
so that story I feel is significant to the movie that eventually would take on the same name as the song um, White Christmas. The movie itself um, basically was made only 10 years after the story that Bing Crosby was talking about. And he would portray a soldier himself, once again, entertaining a group of men away from home, defending their country on Christmas. His character, Bob Wallace, would sing White Christmas in a somber moment at the beginning of the movie. And it's not exactly out of context because White Christmas is a performative show. There are a lot of musical and dance numbers, but there is this moment where it is just Bing Crosby on stage singing White Christmas. No one's moving. No one's dancing. And it shows all of the soldiers sitting on basically the dirt and just listening as he sings. And I want to think that this was Bing's decision. He wanted to um, have a moment cementing the remembrance of those who were lost in the Battle of the Bulge, the ones who had listened to him sing that very song and then just a couple days later would march um, to their own fate, unfortunately. So to continue talking about the movie White Christmas and to get a little bit away from the more somber tone that I've set, um, let's just kind of talk about what White Christmas is. The movie White Christmas has itself been a staple in popular culture um, for basically years, uh, and it still is a staple. It's something that's constantly referred to uh, in, in popular culture. But without giving away too much of the plot, basically what it is is on the eve of Christmas in Europe in 1944 at the height of World War II, former Broadway star uh, Captain Bob Wallace, played by Bing Crosby, and an aspiring performer, Private Phil Davis, played by Danny Kaye, uh, entertained the 151st Division with a soldier's show. The men have received word that their beloved Major General Thomas G. Waverly has been relieved of his command. Waverly arrives and delivers an emotional farewell, and the men send him off with a rousing chorus of The Old Man, another song written by uh, Irving Berlin. He actually wrote most of the songs for this movie. Hmm. Um, after Waverly departs, enemy bombers attack the area and everyone takes cover. Davis shields Wallace from a collapsing wall and is wounded by debris. Wallace asks how he can pay back Davis for saving his life. And Davis suggests that they become a duo act. Um, Bob doesn't like this, but he feels obliged to agree since this dude saved his life. <laughs> they become huge stars, uh, leaving Davis basically no time to himself. And he suggests that. Bob finds a wife to occupy him so that he doesn't work Davis so hard. It's basically well, like, go spend time with your wife. If you have, he says, if you have five kids and you spend five minutes with them a day, it'll at least give me time to go and get a massage. <laughs> the poor guy. <laughs> there are a lot of really fun one lines in this movie, and that's one of them. Um, so thus our plot rides on the vehicle of Davis setting up Bob with a sister, uh, Rose, played by Rosemary Clooney, of a army buddy, who also happens to be a performer, uh, performing in a dinner show with her sister, played by Vera Ellen, who is a very famous dancer um, at the time, and she showcased her skills in this movie. <laughs> the four escape to Vermont, where they hope to experience snow, only to find it's an unusually warm winter and no snow has fallen. They find an inn that is completely empty due to the lack of business usually brought on by skiers, only to find that it is owned and operated by their old general. 
Uh, it is then that they plan to host a big musical show to drum up business and save the generals in. And that's basically the plot of White Christmas, uh, without giving away too much. <laughs> so how does that compare to the song White Christmas? Um, it, it's basically note for note. It is a two-hour, albeit, capture of the story that Irving Berlin had intended. It's a show about being away from the comforts of Christmas and wanting those familiar things, you know, for snow, if it's as simple as that, or just for the days to be merry and to watch children play or to see the glistening sparkles off of freshly fallen snow. These are all things that we find comfort in because they remind us of a familiar time when things were better. And that's kind of the general's whole thing throughout this movie is he wants to go back to the army because he remembers the camaraderie of being in the army and the feeling of being needed. And that's what he longs for is those olden days that are long since gone. Um, and he is almost a perfect representation of what I have to imagine Irving was trying to describe that feeling of just, you know, the days go long and you're tired and you just want something familiar and cozy. And in this moment, it's snow and the snow's not there, but we still love the general and we want to make him feel needed and wanted. And by doing that, we're going to put on this show and make people come and see the general again. And in that way, we'll make him feel better. Mm -hmm. uh, you know, and we hope for snow as well. <laughs> but it's basically just for longing for the simpler times um, that we all used to know. Does it? Does so, it actually snow in the movie? Does it ever get to snow? Do you on want Christmas? me to spoil it? Uh, so I assume it does happen. If you're saying that, don't spoil it. It's a what is it? A 50 year old movie? Can we get spoilers? Everyone okay, cool yeah, that? you're right. Most people have probably seen White Christmas at this point. Okay, they they sing White Christmas one more time. Okay, and it snows. Hey. They open up these giant barn doors, <laughs> and the whole place is covered in snow. I'm happy. just in time for Christmas. Beautiful. Yeah. We don't get too many of those white Christmases where we live, unfortunately. Yeah. Whether it's because of like global warming or <laughs> lack of holiday magic, uh, it's been many Maybe. years since the yeah. stars have aligned and granted a white Christmas in the area where it's we live. It's just because we I don't believe hard days. enough. That's really what it is. Something mm -hmm. like that. I watched Elf. Jingle the Bell and it's got to make a sound and you got to hear it. <laughs> yeah. I yeah. do know that rule. <laughs> um, I actually don't have a single memory of snow being on the ground around Christmas other than like piles of slush left by earlier snowstorms. Yeah. There's been I a think, few around here. Been a Back when I was in like yeah. wow, must have first or second grade. Slid under yeah. There. yeah. Then the world yeah, got I don't, a little hotter. <laughs> I don't have memories of those. A little bit hotter now. I, I, a little bit hotter now. <laughs> yikes. The world is on fire. In fire. Um, hey, hey, hey. <laughs> <laughs> what a red Christmas. You guys want one of those? <laughs> no. Yes, comrade. No. No, thanks. No. <laughs> Gifts are not for no, individuals, please. but for the collective group. <laughs> it's a red Christmas. Comrade Christmas. <laughs> How we doing over there, guys? <laughs> I don't know. <laughs> It's a weird time of year, yeah. you know this. <laughs> yeah. We're all getting in the Christmas spirit. Some people, you know. So people be rushing to Ooh. it. <laughs> I'm dead. It all comes around. 
as I was saying, um, I I don't have I have not had a single white Christmas. <clears throat> like there have been Christmases where there was quote unquote snow on the ground, but it was usually ice. But there has not been a a Christmas Eve where I went to bed and when I woke up, a freshly fallen snow had okay. just graced the land it's always been like the melted remnants or icicles of a snow that happened weeks before um yet strangely though i don't have the memories of a white christmas i find myself every year hoping to wake up to a fresh blanket of snow yeah even though i've never experienced it it's never been a part of my life every christmas i want a white christmas and i set the sole responsibility on this song (laughs) It makes me feel nostalgic for a time where every Christmas was white and there was always a new fallen snow on the ground on Christmas Day. Something that has never existed for me. I'm nostalgic <laughs> for it. And that's what this song's all about. You have Anamoya. What's that? Nostalgia for a time you never knew. Oh, wow. We're an education podcast, too. <laughs> No. <laughs> I mean, we did just spend an hour talking about White Christmas and a dude named Irving Berlin. That's yeah. true. <laughs> but yeah, every every Christmas I want it to be a white Christmas, and it makes me long for the majesty of a white world with children playing in the snow and glistening treetops. And you know, maybe it'll be this year. Maybe if we dream and we hope, we'll have a white Christmas. Maybe if we all just entertain this. Ooh. One hour, one minute, and 26 seconds. <laughs> Where's our snow at, meteorologist? Make it happen. Make it happen. I did it. I did what you said. I did the whole episode. Make it snow. Now. It's because they got rid of the chemtrails. That's mm-hmm. that's probably They're it. They're turning yeah. the freaking frog. <laughs> <laughs> you seen very many jets in 2020? Like, people weren't flying. How are they going to spray the chemtrails? Yeah, I mean, yeah. I'm I'm happy it's December and I'm happy that it's like getting cold outside. But also, do you guys ever have that feeling where you're like, I was for sure swimming like last week. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Like I was wearing shorts like, on I, this walk last week. Wasn't it was I? <laughs> for sure summer last week or the week. Before. Yeah, yeah. Like it yes. was like we had all of about three or four weeks of like between 70 degree weather and like 30s. Yeah, where we live in Cincinnati, it is wild with the weather because yeah. <laughs> it will snow in May, but it will be almost a hundred degrees in August. Well, and the big thing used to be like you stay in like Northern Kentucky, Ohio, because you get to experience all four seasons, and now it's just like, all right, cool, you experience winter and summer, and that's it. <laughs> yeah, like the that. leaves fall off the trees, but they basically are frozen before they hit the right. ground. Yep. So. I need that and crunch. spring happens, but it's cold as hell and windy. Yeah. <laughs> oh, the wind. Oh, the wind, how it blows. I'm crossing my fingers and toes. Maybe we can get a white Christmas this, this year. Yeah, I hope. You guys should go watch White Christmas. It, it's a tradition in my house, watching White Christmas. Seeing Danny Kay do some weird dance to choreography. It's <laughs> awesome. I love it. 40s dancing was a little different. <laughs> it is it was wild. Wild dancing. Hey, yeah. Michael, you got to... You got to quick this one. Mm, you bet yourself I do. You got to quick this, wrap yeah. up this show. So, all right, pull up pull up that timer, yeah, let's Nick. Do it. You're oh, let's do it. I'm irresponsible. That's what I am. I'll let's tell you do that it. much. What? Uh, what's the app I use? It's called uh, Clock. Clock. Okay. Yeah. Okay. <laughs> oh.
Oh, hey. uh, <laughs> hi. Uh, hi, my name is Michael. Uh, I'm going to talk to y'all about, uh, well, here, first off, introductions. You all know me as the video game boy. I'm the guy yeah, who plays yeah. all the video games. Uh, there's yeah. been one in particular that for the last like year or two has been like on and off catching a lot of my time. Um, is it World of Warcraft? No, but it's very is analogous it to that. No, not analogous to that. Um, <laughs> is it but, uh, there is this game that comes from a long line of historied and storied games that everyone knows about. Um, one in particular called Final Fantasy. Um, oh. oh, specifically the 14th installation. Hey, um, they had a spinoff game. Uh, there's where lots of Mickey Mouse games. where Mickey Mouse comes in and does oh, some stuff. The Kingdom Hearts. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> oh, that's a spinoff game? Yeah. Yeah. yeah, yeah. I, I is, uh, Kingdom the, Hearts is same. a combination of Final Fantasy and Disney. Yeah. Yeah. Wow. Like you like you the, the first island you're on is full of like Final Fantasy characters. Really? Uh, yeah, yeah. But anyways, anyways. Whew, mind blown. Final Fantasy 14. It is an MMO RPG, much in the same vein as something like World of Warcraft. However, yep. One of the big differences is that World of Warcraft is a true multi or massive multiplayer online role playing game, MMORPG. Hmm. Final Fantasy is kind of more of an RPG MMO. It places a lot more emphasis on the massively like from the massively multiplayer online part to the RPG aspects of the genre. Um, much in tradition with the Final Fantasy games as a whole, it is all about this big bombastic story as you're going through this fantastical setting. Uh, in particular, this happens on a world called Hydaelyn, and it's got its own whole like lore and shtick and all that, but I'm not going to get too far into that. The reason why I wanted to talk about this game today is because within this next week or so comes out a brand new expansion for the game called Endwalker. This is going to be like the fourth or fifth expansion to the game going back through its long storied history. Um, And it is supposed to be the big conclusion arc to everything that has happened so far. And this is done. What? Are we done? No. So it's supposed to start and kick (laughs) off the brand new story that is supposed to be taking place. And one of the things I'm super excited about is that the guy who directs the game, um, Yoshi P is what he goes by. Uh, he said, like, you guys are not going to be ready for what we're going to throw at you. Like, you oh. think like we've gone far in the past. Like, we're going to take that and just go about 100 times farther. We're so- bringing back Mickey. We're bringing back. <laughs> oh no! We're bringing we're back, back Final Fantasy game with Goofy. We're, we're bringing him into the, the official six one six. That cannon. They're dating the human characters. I'm incredibly excited for it. I've I'm pulling up my like time log right now. I have logged in the last two years one thousand five hundred and seventy two hours into this game. Final uh, Fantasy fourteen. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Wow, <laughs> Mike. Michael? Yeah, yeah, yeah. I'm fine. I'm fine. It's fine. Uh, Michael? Are <laughs> you okay? One of the big things that I think is really cool and unique about this game is how it kind of came to be. Um, so do like a quick little history lesson on this game. But it used to be like Final Fantasy 14 when it first came out, patch 1.0 uh, was probably one of the biggest trash fires in like gaming history. <laughs> like everybody hated it. Nobody wanted even to play it. bigger than Fallout 76? Even bigger than Cyberpunk? <laughs> yes. Yes. It was Impossible. so bad that Square Enix uh, went on stage and issued a formal apology for the game. Uh, uh-huh. Wow. Yeah. 
and they basically like shut it down. They had an actual like in-game event where like the dragon who was like trapped in the moon, Bahamut, destroyed everything. They used that <laughs> as an opportunity where they rebuilt the entire game from the ground up. Good uh, that's and dope. released it a few yeah. years later. Yeah. Nice. Uh, and now it became Final Fantasy, a realm reborn, patch 2.0. Mm. Um, and now we are we've gone through this major awesome story that takes place over the course of like the last six, seven years. And now we're heading into patch 6.0 and Walker. And it's just the culmination of like almost a decade's worth of work all coming together and creating this community around it. And the community within this game is just so good. You go into like League of Legends or wow, you screw up one thing and you're not going to hear the end of it for like the next week. <laughs> like the, you got people in those games that are going to like DM you like five days later and be like, you absolute trash, like you, yeah. you disgusting piece. And you don't get that in Final Fantasy. It's full of good boys and good girls. Um, how, how everyone's super supportive so of each other. And for anyone out there who is looking to try a new MMO experience outside of like WoW or any other of those games, highly suggest Final Fantasy. It blows your socks off from the get-go and it's such a fun time to play. Do I have to play Final Fantasy 1 through 13? No. Every Final Fantasy game is completely independent. Oh, all right. Like Dope. any any um, numbered Final Fantasy game as long as it's not like 13-2 or something, like is a completely independent game. Michael, how do you mess up a mission in World of Warcraft so bad and make people hate you for all time? <laughs> you can you do create it. it. Um <laughs> You're the one who makes it. That's how <laughs> you. Oof. Oh, so like you make but, a mission and then other no, people no, no, join no. I'm it. I'm just saying people people hate Blizzard right now. And so that's the joke. <laughs> oh, oopsie. But, yeah, so, and just as like anyone who wants to get into it. Final Fantasy, as the meme goes, it is like a fantastic MMORPG. It even has you can even has like a free trial. You could play it for free. No time gate. You can play it as long as you want all the way up to level 60 where any job all the way through. It's award winning expansion. Heaven's word. Go do it. It's great. So you can just this. play it for free up until 60. Yeah. Hello. How fast do you get to level 60? Uh. Depends on how how slow you want to take it. If you want to like really indulge yourself in the story, like it can take like legitimately hundreds of hours. Oh dang! Yeah, like you can level choose to like level each individual class up to sixty because you can be like one character and be every class. So it's like so you're yeah, not like you pretty much get like a lot of runtime out of the free stuff. <laughs> oh yeah, like I am like just I just came up on like the end of the game like of the current game and i've put in one and a half thousand hours into it well, well yeah yeah how much does it cost with the big old key screen, right? thing yeah it's, it's like you pay you pay for the like base game and then you pay like 15 dollars a month oh dang yeah, that's, that's not too bad. bad yeah you get a lot that's out of it amc uh a list is ten dollars a month Ooh. <laughs> yeah you get three three <laughs> tickets a week hmm, one or the other are we, we sponsored <laughs> by amc or Choices, choices, choices. Yep. Okay. I have AMC stock, so yeah. We we are. <laughs> this episode sponsored by AMC. <laughs> Get, uh, join a list. Get your free tickets. Okay. Hey guys. <laughs> um here's here's a little bit of change to the regularly scheduled program. Um I want to make an announcement. It is December, and we're gonna talk about a lot of Christmas stuff because that's what we know. We all celebrate Christmas. There are many holidays mm -hmm. out there. 
There are many holidays that are celebrated and they are all of equal importance, but they're not things that we know about traditionally. Um, so now more than ever, I ask if you have anything that you want to see us cover, um, especially if it's holiday related, we might not get it in this holiday season, but it'll help us for next month to be more inclusive in what we talk about because we can educate ourselves better on other traditions or other things that are equal representation and entertainment for other forms of religious celebration throughout these months um, as we continue on. It's just not stuff that we know about naturally. Um, so it's not the stuff that we would gravitate towards. But I think that it's super important to say, uh, if you have anything that you want to hear us talk about, email us. Our email is entertainthispodcast at email or at gmail.com not at email.com that won't <laughs> <Yep>. work <laughs> at gmail.com or you can go to our website www.entertainthis.net and scroll all the way to the bottom where there is a survey that you can fill out and you can tell us the thing that you want to see us cover um that gets sent straight to our inbox we will check those and we'll give you a little shout out if we end up picking your thing there are other ways that you can also stay in contact with us uh, we have a Twitter. We are entertain underscore this. We have an Instagram. We are entertain this podcast. We have a Facebook group. It is podcast entertain this. Post updates on the show to all three of those. You can also see the video version of our show with our lovely faces making weird faces. And it's usually less edited than our audio version. So you probably will get more of our mess ups. And if Nick forgot to edit out Chloe coming in to correct me about the thing, because that's her job. Um, but that's it for this week. Remember, Entertain us so we can entertain you and you can entertain this. We'll see you guys next Friday. Happy holidays. Goodbye. And happy Honda days. Happy Honda days. Happy Honda days. Happy Honda days. Go get a RAV4 or a RAV5 or a RAV6 or a RAV7. <laughs> this episode of Entertain This was written by Alex Steele. Additional commentary from Michael Savoya and Nick Mustakangas. Our showrunner and resident fact checker is Chloe Price. Our theme music is Rush Bubble by Aaron Spencer, with additional interstitial music by DJW. Tune in every Friday for new episodes, and thanks for listening.